I do want to spend a few moments talking about Christmas. And I, I, I want to suggest to you that often we get carried away with the Christmas story, which has, of course, been commercialised and it's been, um, if, you, if you might call it, sentimentalised in, in Christmas cards and many of our Christmas carols that reflect some truth but, but not all truth. And it's a funny thing, all week I've had this sense that I need to talk about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And, and, and so I've got to weave it in somehow because I feel God really wants me to talk about it. And uh, I, I do know exactly what it is he wants me to say. And basically what he wants me to say is it wasn't a silent night. It wasn't a silent night. All wasn't calm in Bethlehem at that time. Bethlehem, of course, was a village about 10 miles, 16 kilometres from Jerusalem. It had been founded about 1,400 years prior to the birth of Jesus. It had been quite a large town and gradually it had grown smaller over time. One of the really important things about Bethlehem was that it was a source of fresh water. Because for many, many years in the temple, animals had been slaughtered and so there was lots of blood and guts, so to speak, that was actually flowing into the watercourses. So in Jerusalem, there was a bit of a difficulty in getting good water. But the good water actually flowed from Bethlehem. Now, I had never known about that until I did some research for this discussion point. And you know, isn't it interesting that Jesus was born in Bethlehem where the fresh water was. And he spoke of himself as being the source of living water. Bethlehem itself was a source of living water that people could drink in Jerusalem with confidence, knowing that it wasn't contaminated. But I want to tell you a little bit about what it might have been like to live as an ordinary person in Bethlehem and, in fact, all over the Roman Empire. And we've got some, some good historians who we can thank for bringing this information to light in academic journals over the last few years. Some of this, I think, I've shared with you before. The, the average income in that time was around 700 United States dollars. So, in round figures, about 1,000 Australian dollars a year. Now, that's actually below the official poverty line in the world today. So, we're talking about equivalent. Not, not wasn't 700 US dollars back then. It's 700 US dollars in today's money, or roughly $1,000 in Australian money today. Now, can you imagine living on $1,000 a year in Australia. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, it was pretty well impossible for many people at that time. In fact, around about a quarter of the population lived <coughs> below starvation level. So there were high death rates among babies and young children. 
giving birth was a very risky thing for a woman. And you know what? These things didn't really change until about the middle of the 18th century with the Industrial Revolution. The world was under the grip of sin. Sin mars everything. It was a tough life for the average follower of the Lord, for the average Jew. They were oppressed not only by the Romans, but unfortunately by their own religious leaders. Now there was no such thing as a tax-free threshold back then. Everybody had to pay their tax. Had to pay tax to the Romans. And often, of course, the, the agents for the Romans were other Jews. And they would add a levy on top of that because that's how they made their living. And of course, they weren't liked by their fellows. But in addition to that, there was a temple tax. Why was that? Well, the priests had become accustomed to living the high life. You go and have a look at some of what we call the minor prophets, you will see that God was complaining about the religious leaders because they were looking after themselves before they were giving anybody else any kind of consideration. And this was the kind of world into which Jesus was born. There were and had been by then for a few hundred years uprisings among those who were oppressed. And at the time Jesus was born, there were these people we call the Zealots. They thought they ought to be overthrowing the Romans through the sword. The physical sword, not the sword of the Word of God. There was a lot of dirt. You know, people didn't scrub up like we do. I had a shower. I washed my hair. I put deodorant on this morning. And I don't smell too bad. Jesus, as we know, was born in a, in a stable, probably in a, in, a, in a large stone trough, which might well have actually been used for water rather than, than for hay. So he was born in fairly humble circumstances. His earthly dad, Joseph, being a carpenter, was almost certainly a lot better off than most of his brethren. The people were oppressed. There was no way out from sin except the annual sacrifice which covered sin it didn't do away with sin if you have a look through the Old Testament you won't find the concept of the forgiveness of sins because through the, the law through the, the ceremonies under the law you weren't forgiven of your sin all that happened really was that the punishment was postponed by one more year because the blood that was shed, the animal sacrifice, it covered sin for a year. 
That's all it did. So people had no hope outside of the law. And yet they had religious leaders who didn't at that time understand the heart behind the law, who had set up hundreds of additional laws that set up an additional tax. God only ever wanted people to tithe and to be involved in the offerings that were set out under the law. But they had to go way beyond that because of the demands of their leaders. Their king Herod wasn't even a rightful king because he didn't come from the right family line. He was a usurper. He was put there by the Romans as a puppet king. It wasn't a nice place to be. In fact, Christian philosophers would say that at that time, our life was disenchanted. I know that there are movies like The Enchanted Forest and all that sort of thing, and they, they get into spiritual stuff. But in, in Christian philosophy, there's this idea that our experience of life can be one which is either enchanted or disenchanted. Actually, they talk about being unenchanted and re-enchanted as well, but we won't go into that. You see, when life becomes drudgery, when we are programmed by law, when we are oppressed, when we do not see relationship with God, then our religion has become disenchanted. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus was born into a disenchanted world. He was born into a disenchanted world. And although today, financially, we are so much better off than anybody would have been, other than the religious leaders, back then, we're back into a disenchanted world. Sometimes even our church experience can be disenchanted. When we're not engaged, when we're not living a Christian faith, when we don't have a sense of connectedness with God, when we're going through the motions, when we allow the worship team merely to entertain us, and when, if we get a better deal, we don't come at all. It's not for the pastor to criticise, but it's for you to ask yourself, has my faith become a disenchanted faith? Because Jesus Christ came to earth to give you enchantment. Do you know that Christian philosophers also argue that every human being has a desire for goodness Truth and beauty. Goodness, truth and beauty. And in Jesus Christ we find them all. And in relationship with Jesus Christ we can connect with the goodness, the truth and the beauty of God himself. How does goodness manifest in the world? 
it manifests as love. We know, don't we, that God so loved that He gave. He gave. He gave the best He could give because He loved. Because Jesus Christ loved, He allowed Himself to go to the cross. He could have stopped it. Remember He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you know, I could have called, what was it, 10,000 legions of angels. He could have simply said, angels come, and they would have annihilated all the Roman soldiers, the representatives of the priests who had come to arrest him. He could have simply called on those. He, he didn't have to go to the cross. He made that choice because of love. Jesus said also, didn't he? No greater love has this than, uh, than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. Some versions say for his fellows. No greater love. You see, we, we have an inkling about love. And if you have a look at the way love is treated in the word of God, it's treated more as a verb than a noun. He's treated more as something we do, something we commit to, rather than something we feel. We see sin as corrupted love, hasn't it? And so many people in the world see love as nothing really more than an emotion. When the emotion stops, so too does the love. I heard, uh, and I've heard this a number of times, a, a very well-known radio personality saying, you can't help who you fall in love with. What a heap of garbage. Of course you can. What a heap of rubbish. But you see, that's a philosophy that's grown up because there are so many people who have not responded to this love of God. Where do we find goodness? Well, goodness... Uh, sorry, uh, that was goodness. Truth. What about truth? Remember the question of Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, eventually had to commit suicide. Um, he, he's asked that question, what is truth? Johnny Cash wrote a song about it. What is truth? Well, we find truth through science. And, and, and science simply means knowledge. Unfortunately, today... Truth has been watered down. It's been undermined. Because many people today accept only the natural sciences as the basis of truth. Whereas if you go back in history, theology was treated as the queen of the sciences. You see, because theology is all about knowledge of God. Knowledge about and knowledge of God. So... Theology is a legitimate science and theology is one of the ways in which we apprehend truth. But there are other sciences as well. The, the physical sciences or the natural sciences we know about and actually it was the church that freed science from the shackles that had been put on it to actually become experimental in nature. 
Unfortunately, too many scientists have gone too far and now say, well, there is no God. They can look at the complexity of what they see. They don't connect it to the creation miracle. They connect it to some probabilistic model of what might or might not have happened. Another important science is history because history affirms the truth in theology and in natural science. And uh, we know, for example, that in the Old Testament there are about 300 prophecies about Jesus. 300. Now, some people say, oh, well, that was all contrived. It was written long after he was born, blah, 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 blah. Probably wasn't. And one of the major proofs of that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And among the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find almost a complete book of Isaiah. And they've been dated they, somewhere between 150 and 300 years before Jesus Christ was born. So they weren't stitched up later. So what good history affirms the truth of the Word of God? Lots of archaeology does as well. But there's another, another science that I read about. And I thought about it and I think this comment is true. There are also the poetic sciences. You know, when we write, when we paint, when we sculpt, that's also a science because when done in accordance with the Holy Spirit, of course, it all points to God, the Creator. And the poet, poetic sciences actually are the link, if you like, between goodness, truth and beauty. Beauty is manifest in the creative activities that we actually undertake as human beings. It was J.R.R. Tolkien who coined the term sub-creators. He, he said, yes, the, the Lord of the Rings bloke, right? He was also a theologian, along with um, C.S. Lewis. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. Um, and C.S. Lewis, by the way, he also wrote a little, a little just a little um, essay called The Bicycle, and it's about disenchantment and, and enchantment, en enchantment. But um, J.R.R. Tolkien said, we're not creators because only God can create ex nihilo. That is, only God can create something from nothing. We can't do that, but we're sub-creators. And so when we build, when we, when we uh, experiment, when we develop the world that God gave us, we're exercising our capacities as sub-creators. And uh, I, I've always been the kind of person who I can look at, at roads and, and at buildings and I marvel at my God, because he made it possible for human beings to create these things. People who, who are architects, people who, who design ships and aeroplanes. I sat at dinner the other night with a, with a man who goes all the way around the world designing ships and ports. All around the world. In fact, he's going to come and preach here one day. Uh, next year, if, I, uh, if he's not overseas uh, too much, he's, he's actually offered to come here and preach because he's got a really good story about giving. An amazing guy. Absolutely amazing guy. Anyway, um, so that, that's for the future. 
But he, you know, he designs ships and he designs ports. What a creative activity. And see, when it's done for the glory of God, it points people to, to God. Much of the world, they don't see any beauty in this. It's all functional. And the reason is, none of it has been done for God, it's been done for man. So nothing that man creates has any value beyond the instrumental value in terms of what services it renders to us. But yet I see a building and it points me to God because he's the one who placed the creative capacities into human beings. You see, when, when love is something we can't control, when love is love and I can't help falling in love, there's no enchantment. When the only science that has any validity is the natural science and there's no God behind it, there's no creation that underpins it, I have a disenchanted science. When everything I create has nothing more than an instrumental value, when I make a meal, if the only value that has is that it satisfies my hunger, I'm living a disenchanted life. But when I experience the great love of God who so loved me that he gave his only son that I might not perish but have everlasting life, then I start to live an enchanted life. When I can see God in the natural sciences, when I can see him in history, when I can see him in the poetic sciences, I'm beginning to live an enchanted life. When I can see God in the natural creation and when I can see God in everything that man has created as well, then I'm beginning to live an enchanted life. Do you know why it wasn't a silent night? It was because the angels said, Hark! That means listen up. Things are changing. The angels, they might have appeared to shepherds who were at the lower end of the socio-economic ranks. But they said this, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. What they were saying is, no longer, no longer the, the, um, the chaos of an unenchanted life. No longer... Do we have to hope that other men will give us something of a life? But God said, goodwill, goodwill towards humankind. I believe that in philosophical terms, this baby in the manger was a signal of a re-enchantment of life. We have the great privilege today of personal relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, his son. He came. He came in the form of a human baby. Why did he do that? Because Jesus, in order to be perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, had to give up his deity. 
He had to be born a man. Well, actually, a baby. He wasn't born a man. That would have been a surprise. He was born into this world as a human being. He lived among us. He taught us goodness, truth, and beauty. It is in Jesus Christ that we find enchantment. So I would say, yep, it wasn't a silent night because people's spirits would have been stirred. Their souls for many would have been in anguish because of the oppression that they lived under. And it was probably not a quiet town anyway because the Romans had required everybody to go back to the town of their birth in order to complete the census. So there were probably donkeys and camels everywhere. And that's why the angels said, Hark! Listen up! Stop what you're doing! I've got a message for you! Peace on earth through enchantment by means of a personal relationship with the God of the universe. The God who is truth. The God who is good. The God who is creator. Do you know how that carol goes? Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. So often we think well, he's king in a kind of political sense. We have an image of kings because our only experience with kings has been kings in a political sense. But you see, when he was born the king, he was born king of everything. King of everything. He's king of love. He's king of science. He's king of creativity. The political stuff doesn't matter all that much when we're living an enchanted life. God bless you. Let's